The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. I will hand over to Ajahn Brahm to lead us in tonight's guided meditation. Thank you, Ajahn. It's my pleasure. And I say that because meditation is a pleasure, it's a joy. And often when people say that if you enjoy the meditation, if you really enjoy it, and you get even attached to the joys of meditation, is that a danger? And of course, the answer was given in the Pasadika Sutta, where the Buddha said that monks can actually say honestly, and nuns too, that if they do delight in meditation happiness, it can only lead to four results. Three meaning once returning, non-returning, or fully enlightened. When I first saw that, I thought, what a wonderful answer. In other words, we are supposed to have delight in the meditation process. And it's also, you can see that in the, the um, <clears throat> gradual training, repeated in many, many suttas, Dignikaya and Majjhimanikaya, uh, because those delightful types of meditation, which is supposed to happen, is part of the path, shows you're making good progress. And it's one of the reasons why, that if we're going to meditate properly, and we should look for a delightful posture, first of all, and then a delightful meditation method with lots of kindness and gentleness with whatever we're doing. And then meditation becomes a very easy practice to do and something which you look forward to doing. So often, you know, that's actually quite rare sometimes that I get lots and lots of time. But here, just over in NPM, I must admit that some afternoons you've got lots of time and you can really enjoy it. I mean that. It's like going on a holiday. It's one of the reasons why, you know, we called uh, the Jhana Grove Meditation Retreat Center in Perth and also the new retreat center we're building here in NBM in Newbury. We call these Club Med. Meditation. Call it Club Med because it puts the uh, emphasis that this is a happy process. If you do it properly, it becomes very joyful, very easy. Because what on earth are you trying to do when you're meditating? A lot of time it's learning how to relax very, very deeply. And if you learn how to relax properly, very, very deeply, the body gets so relaxed, it disappears. And the only way you can do that is to go through lots of kindness. And last week I was asked to do a, a guided meditation on loving kindness. But sometimes I feel a bit of a fraud because all meditation is about loving kindness. If you don't have the loving kindness included, if you're too harsh and forceful, you can get some results, but the results aren't really sustainable. And also, it's not very happy and peaceful. When you include the loving kindness early on in the meditation, then the meditation is so easy and peaceful and delightful. And you have a wonderful time. And of course, you all deserve having a wonderful time. 
especially the monks and the nuns I see in front of me. You all deserve a wonderful time. Why not? And so learning how to be kind helps. I think a couple of days ago I said to people that when I was over in uh, university, I got, uh, uh, I don't know how this really happened, but I signed up to join the boat club. And one of the things which I remember, maybe the only thing which I learned from that boat club, rowing on eights down the river Cam, was actually, it was the River Granta. They have different names for different parts of the river, the same river. But anyway, but when we were rowing down that river, I remember the coach on the footpath shouting at me. It's telling me that I was making an ugly face. I should smile when you were you know, putting that oar as hard as you could. But I always took the advice of others and I smiled. And then the pain disappeared. And also I had more energy to pull that oar. It was weird. But just when you put happiness into what you were doing, the difficulties disappeared. And that's the same with meditation. That happiness, that smile, does a lot to relax the body and also to relax the mind and make it peaceful, make it still. And of course, those who have been following me for a long time now know the purpose of the meditation is to, to experience, well, first of all, stillness. I much prefer that translation for samadhi than concentration, because concentration so again, I've said this already on this visit, it makes the place a concentration camp with all of the ideals you know, which are associated with a concentration camp. Force, and force means more ego. So in meditation, we learn how to be very gentle. And then when you're gentle, this moment right now appears to be delightful, it becomes beautiful. When this moment is beautiful, of course, you just love staying there. You don't want to go anywhere else. You don't want to do anything else. This moment here is delightful enough. And that old saying, when you want something more, you can't enjoy what you already have. I repeat that. When you want something more, you can't enjoy what you already have. The wanting is what we try to abandon in our meditation. Instead, we're right here enjoying what we already have. And each one of you, either here in this room or listening to this talk, you already have enough. And I don't just mean uh, materially. I mean in your health. It's good enough. That's why you can be here and be aware. In your comfort, in your spiritual path, don't want something more. You want something more. You can't enjoy this moment. And that makes you restless. When you, sorry, when you enjoy this moment, all the restlessness and negativity disappear. So one appreciates every moment in this meditation. Even in some of these moments you feel, oh, this is aching, this is painful. You go into it. You sort of dive into it and you find out in the middle of it, it's not a problem at all. And the reaction we have to these so-called difficulties in life, it's a reaction which we can let go of. We just be here. Don't react to it. This is just life. Make peace with it. Be kind, be gentle. In fact, that three words, make peace, be kind, be gentle, have been written on many T-shirts. And 
the people say that it's a quote from Ajahn Brahm. It's not a quote, it's a translation by me. And of course, that's a translation of the second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. The Buddha said that. Maybe not make peace, that's not a good translation, it's to let go. But be kind, be gentle, is the second and third part of the second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's the Buddha's words. So remember, the Dharma and the meditation are the same. What works in meditation is the Dharma. What is the Dharma is what works in meditation. So little by little, we can get very peaceful inside. So that's just a little introduction. And now, if you would uh, get in your meditation posture. If you've been sitting here, like I've been sitting here, uh, for half an hour earlier talking to the great bhikkhunis of Newby Buddhist Monastery. You can actually stretch your legs if you wish. Stretch your legs that way if you wish. You don't need to prove anything to anybody because the camera's not on you. <laughs> the camera's on me. <laughs> you find you're more comfortable later on. You don't need to move, fine. Once you're comfortable, then you can close your eyes and you can begin the guided meditation. Then not particularly on any subject of meditation, except on peace and stillness. And what happens after stillness grows inside of you? And brings you delight in a body which is like a rock and a mind which is still, which doesn't need to move because it's just delightful just being here. So first of all, as usual, check your body first of all. For the body to become still and peaceful, it needs some care. So I check my posture, my feet and my legs and my knees. When I get to any part of my body, actually I'm going way too fast. I like to slow down. How do your feet feel right now? Are they in a position which you can maintain without needing to bother about them? Somebody once described it like, you park your car outside your home or the hall. You make sure that everything is in its right position, it's all locked up, so there's no sort of uh, things which you've missed. Then you can go leave the car and say, go to a Buddhist temple and listen to a talk, do some meditation. When you, you know that once the talk is finished, you can go outside and the car is there for you, safe and comfortable. So I make sure my feet are comfy. I look upon them as different beings in themselves. Just like in monasteries where I visit, making sure, you know, every nun, senior nuns, junior nuns, every monk, every anagarika, every helper, everyone who's serving, looking after the place, it's 
my job to make sure that they are looked after. And if they are, then I can go back to my room and be peaceful. So my knit feet are nice and comfy. My lower legs and my knees. If you're sitting on a chair, you may just move your legs apart a little bit. Or maybe tuck the feet further underneath the chair. Don't assume you're already in the best position. What care is, is like listening to your legs, feeling them, understanding them, knowing them, being sensitive to them. It's like being a head monk. I have to listen, be sensitive you know, to the people who I'm looking after. You're looking after me. So I'm looking after my knees now, so they can look after me. I go to my thighs. I haven't been doing too much exercise today. Thighs feel comfy. Into my butt. I always like staying with my butt a little bit longer. Because in the past, I'd sometimes ignore the position of my bottom. And because of that, you get uncomfortable. And just any fidgeting I prefer to do now, to find the optimum position. How this works is you're mindful of the feelings in your butt. You move. Slightly this way, slightly that way, and feel is that more comfortable or is it less comfortable? So, what mindfulness can do give you feedback, and the kindness is being serious about this and making sure I'm going to move slightly this way, move slightly that way because I care about the comfort of my buttocks. I don't just try and ignore them and just order them to be okay. I care enough about them to work with them in harmony. And then they're really peaceful. They're calm. And I find out just the same way that I make the best possible position for my sitting posture. That's exactly what I do later on when I look at my mind to make it peaceful. And then, I go up my back. I check my back. And as I'm checking it, maybe the same for you, maybe your back is already perfect. My back needs some attention. I'm gonna stretch it. Today that feels better. Your posture is not always the same. What worked for you yesterday, not necessarily works today. And I go to the front of my body, the torso. Go up the colon, intestines, tummy, stomach. 
I might be getting the descriptions wrong, but I sweep up there, making sure everything is relaxed and peaceful. When it is, it feels good. If there's any part of my body which needs extra attention, I just stay there. Often says to zoom in and give it extra goodwill and kindness. Just like I give to other people when they ask for a blessing. Because I don't do charting in party to my own body, I just notice it and give it as much kindness as I have. And feel it so opening up, relaxing, easing off. It's building up the power of awareness and kindness, what I've called kindfulness on my own body. Go up to my lungs, my heart. Every part of it, just if there's no feelings or sensations there, it means everything is just working fine. I just go past it. Giving comfort and well-being to individual parts of my body, as if they were my team, working together as best they can. And I go to my shoulders to relax them, because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I was meditating in the past, you get shoulder pain. So I just make sure they're nice and loose. And how to make them loose? I sometimes imagine that these invisible demons or monsters pulling those shoulder muscles on each end, stretching them. How do you relax them? Let go. Let go of all this pulling and pushing, all this doing and all this controlling. Because if you let it be, it becomes peaceful. I go down my arms, elbows, which are comfy, wrists, which are comfortable, and then to my hands. Please move them to see if you can put them in a better posture. It's an almost an exercise. You may not need it, but it's a good exercise in the feedback of mindfulness, together with kindness overcoming problems. I go back up to my shoulders and my neck, making sure the head is well balanced. Then to the front of my face. So I learn how to relax the muscles around my eyes and mouth. How do you do that? Trial and error until you find out what works. Once my face feels relaxed, sometimes I do a little extra thing. If you've been busy, not physically, but mentally or emotionally, having lots of problems to solve, 
things to do in your work. I imagine between my ears, two inches behind my eyes, is my brain. Your brain may have been overworking, out of kindness for others. And I imagine my brain, just visualize it. And I imagine, this is visualization, no, that's, that's all. Imagine lifting my brain out of my skull and putting it into a little bed with a soft mattress, beautiful doona, and a really, really soft, nice pillow. And saying thank you to my brain for the work it does. This is meditation time, you don't need to do anything. And then I go to my whole body to let it be, to let it relax. If I still see that some part of my body needs extra attention, of course I will go to that and do something about it. Kindness isn't just wishing. Kindness is sometimes doing something to help. In the beginning, I know this is important. It doesn't disturb the meditation if I scratch something. It just shows that I care. My body responds. I look at my whole body just sitting here. Relaxed to the max. To the max means as best I can, can do. And I know there is a sign of good relaxation. That is the delight which comes up, which is starting to arise in my body now, and I'm aware of it, and I'm not afraid of it. A relaxed body is very, very delightful. I'm focusing on that delight. It just takes over because it attracts me. And the more the delight grows in relaxation, the more the body relaxes. The deeper that feeling of ease and comfort. And the healthier your body becomes. I indulge in that. I know it's good for my health and good for my practice. And it's almost automatic. You go deeper into your meditation. In other words, you go into your emotional world. Especially I would ask myself, how peaceful am I right now? Peace of mind. 
What causes that peace of mind? Being in this moment, not worried about the past. That cannot be changed right now. My future, the best I can do for my future is be kind to where it's happening right now. This is where my future is being built. Now, so I'm kind to this now. It's the best I can possibly do. In this moment, I relax it to the max. In this moment, I can't control anything. Controlling needs some place for my wanting to land in the future. Now let go of the future. There's no place for wanting to go. I don't concern myself with the past, which is unchangeable. There's no place where guilt or blame can land. That's all in the past. All I have is now. If I want anything, I lose the now. To be able to stop wanting, I appreciate this moment. Even sometimes when I start watching the present moment, there may be some aches or pains or too hot, too cold. I go deeper than that. The body is hot or cold, not the mind. Inside of pain, the mental part can be really, really peaceful. Always like going in. But as you are being in this moment, are you getting more peaceful? Does it feel good? Just like when the body relaxes, really relaxes, you get delightful feeling. When the mind relaxes, that too feels delight. Because it feels delight in the present moment, the present moment feels attractive. You don't have to force yourself onto it. Don't worry about losing your awareness. It's just here. At peace with this moment. Not judging it, but enjoying it. To me, it happens automatically. I soon become aware of my breathing. I've been doing this for years. I get to a peaceful enough state. I'm aware of my breathing because that's the only thing now happening.
which is one breath at a time. One moment of breath at a time. I don't worry whether it's long or short. Or don't concern myself with too many details. I just know the breath is coming in. I was going out, I was in between. And the most important part is the stillness, the peace. I'm not trying to do anything or get anywhere. When I want something more, more different, I cannot, I cannot enjoy what's already happening. As you watch the breath with a relaxed, peaceful mind, you may soon notice the delightful feeling. The delightful feeling of the breath is important because it means you don't need to put any more effort in. You allow the breath to be. It helps not to describe it with words, but to feel it with your emotions. Stay in this moment. No need to take any notes. Be still. Be peace. And see what happens. I'm now going to be quiet until close to the end of the meditation.
Getting close to the end of this meditation period. Please don't open your eyes yet. Just know how you feel inside. Maybe especially notice the pleasure of inner peace, of silence. You don't need to give it a name. Just feel just how delightful silence is. And what generated stillness? What disturbs it? Which means every every meditation we learn. We learn just the skill of becoming still and the joy of peace of mind. And as you start to feel your body again, how does that body feel? If you relax the body at the very beginning, it's usually even more relaxed now. At ease, comfortable, These are the joys of meditation. I'm now going to ring the gong to allow it to sing, to chime. So we can come out of our meditation gently. Thank you very much, Ajahn, for leading us so skillfully and kindly into a place of greater peace and stillness. Thank you. We have many questions already. I did neglect to mention at the start that people uh, can type their questions into the live chat function on YouTube. 
But since people are familiar with that, because we have a lot of questions already, we may even struggle to get through all the ones we have already. So um, I'm not sure how many more questions we'll be able to fit in, especially since with Ajahn's permission, we'd like to just pick up on a question that was asked yesterday in the Dhamma talk that we didn't have time to answer. And we feel it's probably a pressing question for many people at this time. The question was about the Russian-Ukraine uh, conflict, the war that's happening at the moment, and the terrible human tragedy that's happening there. The question yesterday, which is actually gone from the live chat, unfortunately, uh, related to the point of view from someone who was there, who, who is there as a Russian citizen, or possibly as a Ukrainian citizen, and the question essentially was, what, um, how does a Buddha, the Buddhist respond in the situation of being in a war, uh, in a war zone perhaps. Um, but I think more broadly uh, for us in Australia, there's a lot of concern about how do we respond? How do we deal with our feelings around observing the, the, the conflict and the many um, negative emotional states, I guess, that, that, that the news brings up? I was talking to someone today who recognized that listening to the news upset him a lot um, and made him very anxious and sorry for the people there. But when he tried to cut himself off from the news for a few hours, he felt compelled after a while to go back to sharing the suffering that was happening there. So I guess, um, are you able to talk a little bit about how people can respond to that news? Thank you, Ajahn. Yes, there's sometimes there's always something positive to see in any tragedy. In a tragedy, just we are compelled to look deeper into the meaning of life. First of all, the tragedies are common. And the tragedies are what we see in the newspapers and in the news channels. We don't see the beautiful things which happen. And what comes to my mind was you know, the story of after the uh, Vietnam War. Sometimes some beautiful things happened. After the Vietnam War, I was in Thailand when uh, well, the time was called Saigon uh, fell. The next couple of days, uh, Vientiane fell, and then Phnom Penh fell. There was a lot of, lot of suffering there. But then a lot of people grew from that. And even the country where I was staying at the time, Thailand, we all had to register with our embassies. There was an evacuation plan because everyone expected the governments across the Mekong River to invade Thailand. And I was fluent enough and well-known enough in Thailand at that time that I would speak to many of the soldiers and the generals to find out what was really going on. And many of the, the uh, generals, they knew that the danger was not coming from outside of Thailand, because those forces were just exhausted. But there was a lot of Thai people who left their universities, left their towns, their jobs, their villages, and were insurgents living in the mountains in Thailand and being armed by the communist troops overseas, over the river, and they were a big danger to the Thais. But 
the way that that was sold was just really impressive. I've talked about it a lot, and it was confirmed I, I had it right, you know, from many people, including at the time, oh, a few years later, the uh, Thai ambassador to Australia. I gave a talk over in Canberra in Sydney, and they confirmed that what I was saying was absolutely true. So there was uh, a way of dealing with that problem, which for a change was inspiring. It was um, non-violence. It was addressing the root problem and forgiveness, amnesty. In other words, and I was there at the time I had to ask the soldiers who I met which mountains were safe for monks to go meditate on. In some of those mountains, the senior monks were tortured and killed. And that was the truth. That was Ajahn Fun's senior disciples. And uh, you'd meet the soldiers. And most soldiers didn't want to go to war. And these Thai soldiers, they were just protecting because they were told, they were ordered not to go into where the communist troops were, not to shoot them or murder them, or because as soon as you shoot one, two or three of their brothers would actually join up. That's the trouble with people think they're victorious, but victory, so-called victory, just generates more um, hatred, revenge, and violence. That's what the Buddha said. So instead of that, they made sure they didn't have any violence at all towards the people about to take over their country. And number two, there was always forgiveness, amnesty. Anyone wanted to lay down their arms and go back to university could just do so without any interrogation at all. And lastly, there was the, why were people fighting against the government? What's the cause of these things? In those days, many parts of Thailand were just ignored by the government. And it was actually, give credit where credit's due, the king of Thailand made sure that roads were built in places which didn't have access, and dams were built so uh, people could grow more crops. The country became more prosperous, and one by one, those insurgents gave themselves up until it got to the point the last of the leaders gave themselves up. These were the very incredible people who were leading the insurgency. And they were not put against the wall and shot. They weren't put in prison. Amnesty went for them as well. They were forgiven straight away. And then they were offered senior responsible jobs in the Thai government service. Why waste people who were so committed, so devoted to try and do something for their country. And because of that, the whole sort of insurgency stopped. And when I said that, I remember this was the, the consulate in Sydney, Thai consulate, because the consul stood up and said, I want to add something to your story. But at the time when I told that story, two of those insurgent leaders were serving government ministers in the Thai government. 
they weren't put against the wall and shot or imprisoned or exiled. They had incredible just devotion to the cause. They could work so hard and they were just so good at organizing people. Why actually get rid of them? Get them inside the government to do something good. And I thought, wow, at last someone's actually doing something Buddhism, Buddhist in a Buddhist country. And because that's a solution sometimes. We may think that's a difficult solution, but it can be done. You know, to me, you know, who cares what flag flies over a country? What I care about is that the people are kind to one another. There's a sense of that sense of freedom in the sense that people are respected for you know, who they are, what they do, not just because they speak some language or because they have some differences than anybody else. So little by little, it shows that the solution of just fighting and killing and bending the truth in our news doesn't work. People will find out eventually. And if they don't find out, Please excuse this term, but people love this expression. It's, I heard it from somebody else. I didn't make this one up. But if I did, I'd be proud of it. There's no need to seek revenge because karma will get the bastards anyway. Please excuse that language. <laughs> but it's very Buddhist. You, know, you think, oh, what are these people do this stupid stuff for? Karma will usually settle things. So you don't need to be the one who avenges the death or the pain, the torture of someone you loved. Forgive, learn, and try and do better. So, and it will eventually finish. How it finishes, I don't know. But remember, it's good to be caring for one another. But if you get really upset, you're taking that way too far. This is our life. When we get upset, our responses are usually disproportionate to what we can do, what we can really achieve. Never get upset. See that this is part of our world, part of our life, it's part of our history. How can that stop? I always thought that because all my history lessons were about European history. And there's how there's so many wars were fought in Europe. And I thought, the European Union, I thought, what a wonderful achievement that was. You know, the countries of Europe which would fight together. I still remember the good old French. I was English. But when I used to go and see my rock bands in the Marquee Club over in Wardour Street in London. I always had to walk past the Ajax Club. It was a French club and there was a big sign on that club, English people prohibited. This was in the middle of London. <laughs> this was you know, Ajax and um, what's his name? Oh, the cartoon series. Anyway, it was, ah, oh, I used to see that a lot. You mean the 
the big one, the, the fat fella, the small? Yeah, the small fella, the wizard thing, the fat fella. Oh, yeah. We'll beat all the English and the Romans yeah, and everybody it's else. It's, 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 <laughs> it's only a cartoon series. But that was a fetch club. It was a, no Englishman in there. <laughs> it was just because, you know, they're having a bit of fun and games. The French have got a good sense of humour. So anyway, ast no, Asterix. Asterix, not Ajax. Asterix. Yes. <laughs> No, I used to chuckle when I went past that. But anyway, people started working together and living together and going to each other's countries. I think that is where wars stop. The idea of like France and England having a war again is ridiculous. You can't even imagine it. But you know, the idea that still we have like Russia and uh, can't more people go and live in Russia? More Russians come over here. So getting upset and angry doesn't help. What does help is trying to find a way that that doesn't happen again, as best we possibly can. Of course, it does happen again. We'll try and make it less and less and less. See what happens. It's the only thing which I can offer there. I've seen many wars in my time, many tragedies, many people, especially with the Cambodian community. You know, you, you meet with them, you talk with them a lot. Some of the stuff which, which they endured, you know, when they really get you know, during the Pol Pot years, and some of the stuff which how they saw, but how the beautiful people these days, you know, people who were just came that close to being, being killed and tortured. Some who were tortured but survived. They learned so much from that. They learn how to value life and value peace and value familiarity with others, different race, different religion, different subculture. We can still appreciate one another instead of dominating one another. I can't offer much. You can't just wave a magic wand. But I always remember what the Buddha said when the two uh, parts of India we're going to go to war. And what's more over water? What's more important, blood or water? And obviously blood is more important. So why are you going to kill each other and lose so much blood over water rights to a river? I always remember that's a powerful statement. Why are we just causing so much destruction in Ukraine? Just over what flag flies over there? Can't the Yukis and the Russians just enjoy each other's company? Have no flag over there. I don't know. Anyway, let's have another question. Thank you very much, Ajahn, for that very considered and wise answer. The next question, I'll, I'll just read the questions through in turn and we'll see how far we get. Go. The next question, or the first question online tonight is, as a single girl, I used to control my diet. Recently, I stopped dieting. I've put on weight now, but I'm not overweight, but I feel ugly. I fear not being able to find a partner. Please advise. Okay. Well, I'm fat. And I'm single. <laughs> but I'm not available. <laughs> <laughs> what makes a person attractive? 
It is not your looks, because they will always go. Girls, I remember some girls who I thought were really attractive. I see them today. My goodness. Wow, I almost got caught by that, but got away with it. But I got free from it. Guys, young, fit and healthy. And then they get old, like at least one of you. I'm looking at a few people. <laughs> so this is nature. But what would really be attractive if you want a partner in life is your kindness, trustworthiness. That's what I did this uh, lecture for young people over in Malaysia some years ago. And it's brilliant because we split people in terms that while the guys were listening, these were 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, we asked the girls, what would you like in a guy? If you were going to go out with a guy, commit to them, what would you want to go out with and, and commit to? And in the end, they said, well, people I can trust, people are fun to be with. People who I can, you know, that will never let me down. They're honest. They've got virtue. And then I said, okay, the girls be quiet. The guys were really listening. Because no one actually tells you who you should actually, you know, what you're supposed to be to be attractive. And the same with the, the boys. And boys, what would you like to see in a girl? You know, to go out with them. Of course, this is just the heterosexual relationships. But what would you like to see? And they said exactly the same thing. We would like to see a guy who we can trust, who's going to support us, who cares for us. Simple things like meta, compassion, and virtue. So make those stronger. And then go out to places like Buddhist communities, and, and you can meet your partners there, because you know these are good people, virtuous. And if it's one of our communities, it says, over here in NBM, you know, you can get, if you're really virtuous, you can get Ayu Peka to stamp you. Good quality by the Bikuni Sangha in a new Buddhist monastery. <laughs> and Ajahn Nisavano can actually stamp the man, guaranteed suitable. It's called quality control. <laughs> so you know you've got a really reasonably good partner. You don't have to look beautiful, that passes so quickly. You have to have a beautiful heart that stays with you for the whole life. Okay, next one. Thank you, Ajahn. Next question relates to meditation. Hi, Ajahn. I have had moments during meditation when I have become aware of selflessness. At one point, I felt like I had died and it brought up a great deal of fear. Okay. okay. It hasn't died yet. It was just uh, wounded. So wait till it really dies, and then there's no fear at all. There's great joy and bliss. But it doesn't really die. It just has some peace from it. What is the I? The I is what wants to do something or wants to experience something. How many things you have to experience in this world? I told people over in Perth, if ever you want to go and see the Great Wall of China, have you seen anyone here seen the Great Wall of China? I haven't, but I've seen the Great Wall of Bodhinyana. Have you seen <laughs> Have you seen Niagara Falls? If you want to see Niagara Falls, just go into the shower and turn the water on. <laughs> Same thing, it's just a different quality of water. So we always get this idea we want to see something. That's the sense of self. 
people have these bucket lists these days. They have to go and do this and see that. Oh my goodness. The reason they call it a bucket list, that where that list belongs, is in the bucket, the waste bucket. You know, you're just messing around and wasting time. So you either want to see something or you want to do something. That's what the self is. That which does, that which I want to experience. When you get into meditation, just peace, stillness, not experiencing anything. In the sense of wanting to go and see this or wanting to go and see that. Realize that what you already have is more than good enough. Peace, stillness. Wow. You don't have to do anything. If you try and do something with stillness, you never actually get real stillness, fake stillness. What we were talking about earlier with the monks, sometimes some of these, uh, two of these were passing the teachers, senior ones over the United States. When I went to go to the United States years and years ago, they invited me to just have a talk. And I said, okay, I was in the area. And what they wanted to talk to me about is what is real jhana and what is jhana all about? And I said, oh, well, you know, we've got sort of jhana. And they called it jhana light, L-I-T-E, American term. Not the real thing, but, you know, just it's close enough, isn't it? No, of course it's not. We don't ever talk about jhana light. It's either jhana or it's not jhana. Simple. But anyway, so that's what happens. That after a while, why not go for everything? Go for both. It is fearful at first, only because you're afraid of freedom. Just like the prisoner who's been released from jail for the first time, he's been in jail for years. Thinks that freedom is just untenable. What do I do? Nothing. But I've got to do something. Who said? The Buddha said, just let go, be free. Let go, renounce. A little by little becomes more and more happy, less and less fearful. So a little by little, you go in there again, 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 go a bit deeper each time. Just like the simile of a little child who's never been into the swimming pool at all. Got to put a toe in at a time, foot in at a time. You know, just some mummy's there to keep the child keep coming out of the water to his mummy is it safe well i don't know about water and then throw the whole child in you can't get the child out of the water again it loves it so much mummy i don't want to go home i'm enjoying it playing around with my friends and that's like deep meditation when you get let, let go and become peaceful at first oh what's this Whoa, no one told me about this oh why not when you go into deep meditation it's difficult to come out totally good for you Anyway, next question. But well, well done anyway, you're getting, some, getting somewhere. That's real peace when you get afraid of it. Thank uh, you, Ajahn. Yeah, go on. Next question. Dear Ajahn, in your book, The Art of Disappearing, you mentioned about how easy it is to meditate, just let go. How did you first let go of your life at such a young age? Because of meditation. Just, I don't know how I fluked it. But once you fluke it, or just get deep meditation once. I told this story many times, so I can't sort of upset anybody, I hope. I was having a really good relationship with a young lady. And I mean, sometimes I get told off for this, but please, I don't know why. Just you know, having sexual relations with her before going on this retreat, and a few days later, you know, just getting into deep meditation. 
I compared the two. Honestly, of course you do stuff like that. And then you just compare it as proof. Deep meditation is much, much better than good intercourse. I'm being honest with you. Like I was a lay person at the time. I'm glad I was doing that because I knew what I was giving up. There was nothing compared to the deep meditations. So of course it's a no-brainer for me. Let's just go and check this out even further. Why is now in our world, you know, it's always sexuality, sexual pressures that just almost runs us when we're young. But you know, when you find out there's something even better than that, much better than that, Whew, it's a life changer. So to me, it was a no-brainer. Okay, next question. Thank you, Rajan. We have about four or five minutes left, so we'll see how quickly we can get through. The next question is, how to know while practicing samadhi whether the mind is contemplating or proliferating? <laughs> Both are wrong. So contemplate, don't proliferate, just be still. In other words, shut up. Next question. <laughs> All right. The next one, uh, I feel you've answered already in the first question about Ukraine and Russia. So we'll go to the question after that. I've been meditating a lot recently, and I find myself making silly mistakes more often. Is this normal? As long as they're silly. In other words, have a bit of fun in your life. Don't try and be perfect. If you do make a mistake, please let everyone know about it because it makes them laugh too. <laughs> so anyway, so I was just trying to think of the most recent silly mistake which I made. What one have I done here? Okay. Oh, you're just being too nice to me. <laughs> I can't remember the moment. But anyway, um, so, there's no such thing as like mistakes in the sense of to be guilty about. We do things, and maybe we try a different way of doing things. Maybe our mindfulness is somewhere else. We're actually learning. Mistakes are places where we learn from. So after a while, you get deep meditation. Yeah, you're different, but they're not mistakes. Just the way the world evolves. There was lightning in the distance here this afternoon. When I heard it, I thought, oh, because sometimes it's lightning or when somebody gets enlightened. <laughs> or, oh, that's earthquakes. And actually, somebody was saying that West Australia's had a lot of earthquakes recently. I want to mm -hmm. get back there quickly to find out <laughs> what those monks have been doing. <laughs> All the nuns have been doing as well. So, yeah, no, it's just one nice thing. If you do make mistakes, silly mistakes, please remember to enjoy them. Don't suppress them. Don't think there are some a some which don't be stigmatized by mistakes. Okay. Next question. Thank you, Ajahn. This may have to be the last question. Um, hi, Ajahn Brahm. How do I stop becoming too intertwined and codependent on my partner? I depend on them sometimes too much for approval and validation. What would you recommend I do to fix this? Okay, you ask them what they feel because usually they feel exactly the same as you feel because that's why you're together, you're partners, you're a match. So you don't need anybody's, uh, obviously, approval to be 
to feel validated. Remember, there's nobody in there anyway. So what the heck are you trying to validate? We're just learning from one another. We're growing together with your partner. And just be more honest with them, talk with them. Find those times when you can talk with them. So you don't talk with them when they've just come back from work and they're tired, they're in a bad mood, they're stressed out. That's one of the reasons why I tell all the monks who live with me, if you want to get a special favor, just have a look. Well, it was a silly thing that Paul Ajahnisarana was trying so hard to wash my robe. <laughs> and for days he was trying to take my robe to wash it and wash it and wash it. And I thought it didn't need a wash. And then just recently, it was actually yesterday, Ajahn Mudito, he says, no, I had a really nice lunch. And he looked at me and he saw I had a really nice lunch. Can I wash your robes? And okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was breakfast, a nice breakfast. That's what it was. That's how to do it. <laughs> now look at your partner and you see them in a good mood. Then grab them and get what you want. <laughs> but don't look for validation. There's only one person who can validate you, and that's you. I can do that if you like. You're a great person. Wonderful that you asked that question. So you never have to seek for validation from me ever again. You're validated. Makes it nice and easy. That's why sometimes people, they always want to be judged. And so sometimes when they do something which they were ashamed of or something, they get really upset. So that was, I think I told this story already about Veronica. She was on one of my retreats and she was so miserable. I don't know what's really bothering her. But then, you know, she came to see me in the interview and said, I feel terrible. And everyone else is smiling. They're telling me to be happy. I feel miserable. <laughs> and even worse, when other people have a nice meditation, they're smiling all through the retreat. And I feel that makes me feel worse. Can you please tell people not to smile so much? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just waiting a moment. That's when I, I went into the office. In those days when the office was right next to the interview area, then I just opened up the computer. It was amazing. Opened up straight away. I, and I quickly made out this, this license in Gothic, Gothic script. It was the first ever grumpy license. And it said, now this grumpy license with like Bodhinyana Monastery letterhead and just really looked very beautiful. This license grants to the bearer uh, permission to be uh, grumpy at any time for any reason for the rest of her life. And down, I think I said, until the arrival of uh, a Maitreya Buddha. <laughs> and I signed it, Venerable Ajahn Brahmawaksa. Let no one infringe this right or something like that. And I, I gave it to her. And she burst out laughing. And she said, now she could be grumpy. And then she was happy for the rest of the retreat. <laughs> you know the psychology of that. So validate. You don't have to be 100%. You don't have to be perfect. And look at the trees in the forest, the clouds in the sky, what makes life beautiful. And then the pressure is off. What? I mean, I don't have to be perfect to be lovable. Things which are really lovable are things which are imperfect. Perfect ones, they're just, you know, they're just hiding stuff. They just let it be. Okay. 
Can we do another question, break the rules? <laughs> okay, another question. Oh, thank you, Ajahn. A bonus question. Yeah. All right, the next question in the list, actually two people wanted the answer to this one, so they're both going to be very happy tonight. Dear Ajahn, when meditating, I notice sexual fantasies coming up. How do I practice letting them be and making peace with them without indulging in them? Thanks so much. After a while, because you'll find that there's a certain amount of pleasure in that, but there's, find out there's much more pleasure with peace. And after a while, if that doesn't work, then look at those. Okay, this is personal story. Many of you know this. In the six range retreats I had, I found a perfect monastery for my range retreat. It was in the middle of a tea plantation. Okay, up in the north of Thailand. I had as much tea as I ever wanted. Not only that, but they also had this kombucha they used to make up there. Mm. And just really nice stuff. As much as I wanted. There's no other monks in this monastery. And the, the food was actually, for once, was really nice food. Well, I learned a lesson, though, because once they made these fried bananas and then battered bananas. So that was really nice. And I try never to say that again because the next day that's all I got for my one meal of the day. Fried battered bananas. As many as I was, I was sick of them after that. <laughs> so be quiet what you would like. Anyway, it was a beautiful monastery. And I was allowed, started to get some, there's a big cave there, I started to get some really nice meditation. It was really high up, cool, in a big cave close to the Burmese border, but instead in Thailand. And then, I don't know why this happened, I started getting these sexual fantasies. I'm a good monk, I'd never wanted to throw, but all these ideas started coming up as by myself. I wonder if you know, she's still available, she's got a partner. No, stop it, Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, oh no, stop it, Ajahn Brahm. And I, I was trying to restrain, I couldn't do it. The more I tried to stop these thoughts, the more powerful they became, and the more weird as well. And then I was really exhausted. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a teacher to talk to. There's no electricity in the place. So no, no mobile phones or anything. So eventually, as I went to the hall, I bowed to the Buddha, help. I actually said that, it help. And I got this idea, it's great insight. The insight was to do a deal. From three to four every afternoon, my mind, my brain could think whatever it wanted, the most weird, kinky, sexual, whatever things I wanted to think about, three to four, I would not stop it. The rest of the day, my mind would behave. I made that a determination. You know what happened? <laughs> it was weird, but wonderfully weird. It didn't work at first. And all the times I tried to stop those fantasies, they just kept on going. And came to three o'clock, I went up to my hut, leaned against the wall, exhausted. Okay, now three to four, whatever weird fantasy you want to think, you can. And for the next hour, I watched every breath without missing one. It was so easy. It was weird, it's not what I expected. Why? It's because when I was trying to control my mind, I was actually feeding the negativity. 
and the fantasies. I was trying to escape somewhere. But I said, oh, no, I'll come right into you. And it was so peaceful. I watched every breath without missing one. It was a challenging thing to do, but I don't mind talking about it, but it worked. When you really let go, you really let go. You're not trying to let go to get something. You're letting go, just relaxing, being peaceful. And it was true. There's just like clouds in the sky, they pass. And watch every breath without any problem at all. And I'm still a monk. <laughs> so that's a nice question to finish on so thank you very much for all your questions sorry you don't have enough time to answer them all but again there's other opportunities on the uh, Wednesday night the talk at um, Malvern Town Hall yes so you're most welcome bye Thank <laughs> you.